Broadcasting live from Benoit Blanc's bathing hat, this is Pop Culture Reference, your one-stop reference for all things pop culture. I'm one of your hosts, Seamus Connolly. And I'm Garrett Strother. I do declare. Ooh, that's like the only thing I say in that voice is I do declare that I drop it. Well, Seamus, it's because you're really good at it, and that's it, <laughs> it, it's seamless. It's the master class. And you can't even tell that you're not actually Southern, I don't think. And we are back after our hiatus. Happy 2023. I am so glad to be back on the mic talking about Glass Onion, which feels like it's been out for 10 years. <laughs> yeah, it felt like uh, a, when I was dying and sick and we couldn't, I couldn't go to the movies, it was in the theaters for a second. And then now it's felt like it's been out for a year now. It, because it dropped on Netflix the 23rd of December, so almost a month ago by the time this ep- episode comes out. I'm very excited to talk about it. I've I've seen it three times now, so I feel like I've processed it a lot, which <laughs> good, is not good. an advantage that we had during our during our talk about Knives Out back in the day. Yeah, very true. And and I will say bef- before we get too far into it, I think maybe a, a couple of rewatches are necessary for Glass Onion. It really goes off the walls. And I'm very excited to get into it, especially because we actually don't have any news this whoa oh good god 2023 isn't safe it's not safe water warning <laughs> oh blaring in our ears once again welcome back folks my god man well this is actually our only piece of news this week and it's a pretty tame water warning which is simply that hbo max will be raising its price one whole dollar for the first time since its launch to fifteen ninety nine a month, which is frankly an insane price for a streaming service. I think I think that's a yeah. lot of money. Oh yeah, considering the fact that other than Netflix, it was already the most expensive. Yeah, they they caught wind of critics really going for the Last of Us series, and they're like, now is the time. People will forget. They'll love the show, <laughs> and we could that we could just pull a fast one. But man, fifteen ninety nine. That's that's not nothing. That's all. That's damn hefty. We wouldn't normally cover something like this, but the fact that it is coming right now, when HBO and their parent company and their parent company Warner Brothers Discovery are making so many bad decisions, specifically regarding this streaming mm. service, the fact that they would spit in their consumers' face and then also charge them an extra dollar. Yeah, it's it's a hard pill to swallow here because I used to think that HBO Max and maybe this is battle of the streaming services talk. We keep teasing that over and over, but I think we need was, to. We're waiting till the dust settles on this. I yeah, I, okay, yeah, that it. is that is true. But I really like HBO Max, or I I like a lot of their content that's on there that hasn't been pulled off yet, and so much of this is just souring me on everything that HBO Max has to offer. I'm still very excited about, you know, some of the stuff that's upcoming, and there are a few things left that I still enjoy on HBO Max, but this extra dollar is, is a slap in the face, if nothing else. It's fitting, just like you said, 2023, we're going strong. It's fitting that this is our first news of the year, <laughs> yeah. I think. When we started the Warner warning, we knew that we it wasn't going to end anytime soon. But man, it, it it feels like it's it's just ramping up more and more every week. Man, me and you, we're we're gonna be back getting our eardrums blown out. <laughs> uh, well, better a Warner warning than an hourly dong, Seamus. Very true, very true. But with that, what do you say we we jump into our main segment, Glass Onion? Please, I'm so excited to talk about it. For today's main segment, we are covering the pretty newly streaming Ryan Johnson's Glass Onion, a Knives Out Star Wars story. What is it? It's Knives Out. A Glass oh, no. Onion. Or no, no, it's <laughs> not sorry. Knives Out, a Glass Onion mystery. It's the other thing. Glass it's a onion. mystery, a Glass Onion, Knives Out. Featuring Benoit Blanc. Seamus, it's been a long time coming. You and I both love Knives Out. It's one of the first things we covered for this podcast. I, hype was was pretty big for this one. Expectations were mm-hmm. set pretty high, I think, for both of us. How did Glass Onion fare for you? You and I actually have not talked about this at all. Yeah, I guess we really, really haven't. We've been, we've been saving it all up. I really enjoyed Glass Onion. It was absolutely bonkers. More 
somehow more insane than Knives Out, which was already all over the place and and pulling a million threads at once. But this was this was truly I had to like sit forward in my chair to to gather all of the information going down. I I thought it was very funny. I thought it was very well written, and all of the performances of this ensemble cast are are killing it. And that's not just because I am a huge Batista stan now, even though he did wonderfully as well. But what what are you thinking about Glass Onion? You you definitely got more viewings than I did, and you actually got to see it in the theater. So so what are your thoughts? I mean, I'm glad you brought up the theater thing because it's definitely a shame that Netflix only decided to put this out for a week. We talked about this on the show before, that it was a bad idea, and this movie plays really, really well with an audience, and actually I think there is some humor and some moments in this movie that don't play as well at home, and I think that's a real shame that more people didn't get to experience it in the way that most filmmakers craft their their films to be watched. When I was watching it with my family, and we all, you know, reacting real big, it was it was a great time. But I I thought about how it wouldn't even have to be a packed theater, just some other a, a decent crowd to react and and laugh at all of the the tiny little funny moments in there. I I feel like that would have plussed it up a lot. But as it stands, as a streaming experience, I still thought it was it was a great time. As long as you have some people to to you know look at in surprise when when reveals go down. And overall, it really is a great time, whether you're watching it in the theater or on your couch. I think it's very, very tonally different from the first Knives Out, but it Mm. still has that connective tissue. And that's not just Daniel Craig. There's a very specific way of writing, I think, that Ryan Johnson has a very distinct voice for Mm -hmm. these movies. It's not like it feels exactly like Last Jedi or Looper or anything like that. They feel like these Benoit Blanc mysteries, much in the same way that Agatha Christie's novels all feel the same, even though they're set in all of these wildly Mm -hmm. different, you know, on the Orient Express or on the Nile, and I'm just listing Kenneth Branagh movies, so you get (laughs) the idea. Yes, yes. I don't know if I would put this one above Knives Out, the original. I feel like that would be pretty hard to top in any capacity, but I thought it stacked up wonderfully. And like you're saying that it felt like it was a knives out mystery. It really did feel like that. And I'm, I'm excited for more of Ryan Johnson's work under that knives out title because he's, he's really got something special. I think in some capacities, it actually does exceed knives out, but some of the character work that we'll get into in spoilers is a lot stronger in knives out. And mm-hmm. also, just the vibe is hard to beat, you know, that <laughs> yes, yeah. that old autumnal Thanksgiving oranges and, and browns. Yeah, everything and, is made out of fancy wood in this big mansion that a lot of it takes place in. It's, it's great. And not to say that this, this new Grecian setting isn't really fun and that I have really good time with it, but it's not... It doesn't appeal to me the same way, for whatever mm-hmm. reason, on film especially. I think we'll get a little bit more into that kind of stuff in spoilers. But yeah, I agree with you that ultimately, it's right there. It's a different enough experience that it doesn't have to be better than Knives Out to be satisfying, which is, I think, the goal. Yeah, it meets exactly what it's trying to do. And what it's trying to do is a lot of fun. And I'm, I definitely want to get a couple more rewatches under my belt, probably with a few new people involved to watch with. Cause there's a lot more reveals I feel in this one, or at least a little more rapid developments in a lot of smaller, more significant ways. And I very much enjoyed the entire movie. It felt a little long. I know knives out wasn't a short movie by any means, but it, definitely makes that long runtime feel worth it the the way they structure the the acts and the reveals within flashbacks and in all the extended ways that they make it feel like a lot meatier even though it takes place over like a couple hours i want to say in in the in the time that the mystery is happening i don't think the pacing of this one is as strong as the pacing of knives out knives out they do this thing where they front load all the exposition and 
it's while you're getting to know the characters, and I think that that feels really smooth and clean, mm. and Johnson's filmmaking is strong enough to, to make it go down really easy. But in this one, they they kind of save a lot of that expositional stuff for the middle of the second act. Yeah. There's this moment where the film kind of kind of slams to a halt a little bit and backtracks some. But we'll, again, we'll get into that more in spoilers. Yes, absolutely. Wonderful cast. You've already alluded to that. Yes. It feels like we've been, much like Matt Reeves is the Batman, talking about this person is in the Knives Out 2, this person is <laughs> yeah, in the Knives Out yeah. 2, but Kate Hudson, Catherine Hahn, Leslie Odom Jr., Dave Batista, Edward Norton, Jessica Henwick, Madeline Klein, Noah Segan. Janelle Monet, who I almost somehow left off that list. I was going to catch you, don't worry. Yeah, okay, I'm glad I'm glad to hear that. Did you have a favorite performance without getting too much into the spoilers of it all? I loved Edward Norton, of course. He plays a tremendous jerk in so many of his roles. <laughs> He's very good at that, and I think that is for a good reason. But Janelle Monet absolutely destroys in this movie, and... I won't get into the compli- more complicated nature of her role, but I think she did great with the more nuanced things that she had to do that do get revealed a lot later in the movie and explain a lot of her behavior. I, I just thought she was great, especially when you get past that second act and you get to see a little more of her bouncing off of characters in a way that you haven't been used to in the entire movie. I, th- I thought she was fabulous and I will always love Dave Batista. He makes me laugh, and I I want to see him in a lot more stuff. I know he's doing, like, two other movies right now, and he's already very public about the expansion of his career past Drax and Marvel and, and how he wants to, to have a bigger impact on, on the Hollywood landscape. But in this goofy mystery comedy, he, he's he's killing it. And that's what I love about Batista... It feels like since the second he has had the opportunity to widen his career, he has. Yeah. He did Guardians, and then immediately he was in a Bond movie, and he was in Blade Runner, and he was doing all of these different kinds of films. And sure, they've been predominantly action-oriented, but they're still very different tones and he's playing very different characters in them. Mm -hmm. And I'm excited. I agree to see him continue to expand that because he was a real standout in this. He is so funny. One of the only reasons I want to see that new M night Shyamalan movie is because he is one of the leads. hundred percent. Yeah. I'm not interested really, but I will see it for him. Probably me and you will find a time to watch a probably not very good movie and praise the one good part in it. That's a Shyamalan for you. I suppose. Except for, like, one or two of them, maybe. I think overall, if you like Knives Out, you will like Glass Onion. I don't think that anybody that didn't like Knives Out is gonna like Glass Onion. I don't think it's that different. Yeah, yeah, I I can agree with you on that. It's playing by very similar rules. It has this kind of, you know, it's, it's a pop movie. And I don't mean that derogatorily, because Johnson is excellent at keeping an audience entertained and and, and Mm -hmm. having fun with an audience, but has very surface-level social commentary, which isn't a bad thing. I think that's something that a lot of people don't like about the first Knives Out, that this one doubles down on. I definitely see what you're saying there. It doesn't take too much away from me, like you're saying. It doesn't doesn't really take it down any notches significantly. I, I still had a blast. I, I, I'm, I'm happy that I have instant access to it on Netflix right now to, to, to go back and, and watch it again. I will say the ability to rewatch it is very different and very jarring compared to the fact that I remember for the first Knives Out, I was turning it over and over and over again in my head and thinking about it and deconstructing it mentally. And not to say that I'm not doing that with Glass Onion, but a lot of my things that I think about in Glass Onion and I have a question about it, I'm just like, well, I could just go back and, and watch it again. Yeah, that that is true. I I That does take a little bit away from the this marinating in the mystery of it all. But at the same time, I think that, not that I'm necessarily saying that Johnson's choice to have it streaming immediately is an artistic one, or one that 
is anything other than the fact that this is how Netflix's platform works. The mystery and the the structure of this film is, and I'm trying to say this without getting too spoilery, different from Knives Out in that maybe rewatchability is more important than the ability to sit and parse out things that happened reflecting mentally on a previous viewing experience. Very well said there. I think that, again, no spoilers. I I think that is a very good point to make about this movie specifically. And I mean, I guess I haven't gone back for many rewatches of the original Knives Out at this point, but I, I, I think... You're not wrong when you when you're saying that stuff. Well, do you wanna do you wanna continue that thought in greater depth in spoilers? Yeah, we should prob we should probably jump in here. It's it's a it's a long and wild ride. Okay, so this is your official spoiler warning for Glass Onion. If you've not watched it, it's on Netflix right now. <laughs> yes, yes, it is. So I think the fact that there's not some kind of grand conspiracy to unravel. There's not some genius murder plan, because Ransom's plan in the original Lives Out Mm -hmm. is so complex and only made more convoluted by Marta's actions during the events of the film. And so it really does take that whole, like, 20-minute sequence at the end of Blanc in the parlor with his sleeves rolled up (laughs) to figure out everything that happened in the first Lives Out. And here, it's as simple as... Miles Braun kills the people that are in his way. Yes. Everything else in the film, that's the central theme of the film, is predicated on the idea that Blanc, and by extension, the other characters in the film, are too busy looking for something larger, something more meaningful, something more clever, to not see the obvious thing that is that is right in front of them, because Braun isn't smart enough, ultimately, to do the complicated thing like ransom at a certain point it and i mean this is two for two on knives out of like kind of the most likely suspect did it at a certain point it it felt to me less like who is the murderer and then they focus so much on who was actually murdered that it it does flip that murder mystery script in a in a very interesting way and I, i like that they kind of take that extended flashback to, to flesh all of the double mystery of everything out a little more, but it does remain pretty simple in the end when all is said and done with Miles Braun specifically as the antagonist, as it were. And I find that very impressive that Johnson is able to pull the same trick twice, but differently enough that you don't immediately know the ending of the movie when you realize that he's doing the same thing he did in Knives yeah. Out. Yes, exactly. I guess it's time to talk about the whole Janelle Monet character, characters. For the entirety of the film, pretty much, she's playing the twin of a woman who is murdered before the film even begins. <laughs> yeah. They, masquerading they... as her own sister. At the time, I was like, wow, they're really hitting us with a surprise twin thing. I like this movie a lot, but again, at a certain point, I thought it seemed like a little bit of a cop-out on the mystery itself. A lot of pieces were laid out in the first Knives Out, and a lot of pieces were seemingly laid out in this Glass Onion. But in the end, it boils down to here's a major thing about this entire story that fully negates a lot of the mystery that is set up in in general in the first act itself. Well, that's the thing, though. In the true brilliance of Knives Out, and I think we touched on this when we covered it initially, is that it has its cake and eats it, too. Halfway through the film, it's like, actually, never mind. This isn't a murder mystery anymore. It's a murder mystery from the perspective of the killer, and you get that, and you've never seen that before, and it's exciting and different and new and entertaining. And then it's so well woven, everything leading up to that point, that then at the end they get to go back and they say, actually, no, you get the mystery part too. That's the brilliance of Knives Out, I think. And this movie tries a different approach with that, something that has a lot more political weight to it, which is something because I think that the first Knives Out has plenty of political weight in its outcome. 
it is missing a key component that makes the first Knives Out work, which is it doesn't have a clear central protagonist. In the first film, Marta, we are able to stay with her through the whole film because at, mm-hmm. in the first half, she has so much humanity and such a vivid life outside of the mystery that we're able to empathize with her and relate to her and care for her so that when that twist comes that actually she knows about the suicide and she knows the answer to the mystery, or at least she thinks she does, that we're on board with her and we're like, okay, we're along for the ride with her still. Blanc is kind of this, almost like the antagonist of the film. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, Who's kinda. hunting her down. And in this film... Because we cannot know about Andy's true intentions, Janelle Monet's character's true intentions, until that halfway point, until that reveal, they keep her at an arm's length for the first half of the film. So Blanc, in her stead, becomes kind of the protagonist. And obviously it helps, too, that he's the only character that's returning from the first film in the sequel, so we're naturally going to gravitate towards him anyway. But... They keep Andy at this arm's length, and then suddenly at the halfway point, she really becomes our protagonist. While I'm compelled by her journey, and I care for her, and I think it's a very good performance, I think that that structural split focus makes the third act feel a little clunky, and Mm. the desire on Johnson's part to keep that midpoint reveal ultimately kind of hurts the film as a whole. Yeah, I agree with that. I, it goes back to my feelings about like the surprise twin of it all. It's just it just feels a little plop down right in front of you, and it, it negates so much of the. Because I like watching a mystery. I like having my my theories running and my guesses going. But when it all comes down to something that ultimately is just like a crazy coincidence that this person just happens to have a twin <laughs> that is on this plot, it. It it took me out just a little bit before I I settled back into the to the rapid fire craziness that happens later on. Although I will say, by design, the film does ease you into that a little bit by the scale and kind of grandeur of this film. It's so much larger that it's almost comically larger than Knives Out. It feels massive and. It's way more over the top than Knives Out. The characters are far more cartoonish and buffoonish for that matter. Yeah, yeah. I mean, even just considering, like, the overall plot that Miles has overall is based on a fictional, unobtainium-style fuel source, and he also has the Mona Lisa on loan from the loom. <laughs> exactly, because it's not only that there are all these crazy celebrity cameos, but... These characters just take up such a big space in the world of these films that they're very important public figures, and so it makes everything feel very large. Not to mention the fact that there are sequences in this film that visually have more in common with Johnson's Star Wars film than they do with anything in the first Knives Out. I I would like to examine a little more of the similarities between the Star Wars that you're bringing up here and, and Glass Onion. It's all in the third act, of course. Big, sweeping helicopter shots of characters running around, and then especially once Andy blows up all Mm. of the clear vents, and there's fire raining everywhere. It looks a lot like the end of Last Jedi. No, you're not wrong. That in the in the Imperial cruiser, the throne room in the in the destruction of the hangar that. Rose and Finn are in, a lot of that kind of stuff. Oh, yeah, that too. For sure, that too. I want to talk about, we talked about this a little bit. This honestly could have been our pop culture reference today. (laughs) So Steve Yedlin was the director of photography for this film, and he was for the first Knives Out as well. And they do all of this work in the visual effects and in-camera effects and on set and the way they light it and the way they process it and everything else to make it look extremely filmic, to the point that they add, like, gate weave in. They add artificial digital gate weave into the film, which is where which is where the gate shifts slightly, and so the film shifts slightly from side to side um, as it goes through the gate of the, of the film camera. And obviously they shot this all digitally, but 
it looks super filmic, just like the first Knives Out, that they've been able to customize it to the point they have the freedom and versatility mm. of shooting on digital while still maintaining a filmic look. And I think that this really highlights the versatility I just mentioned, because despite looking super filmic, it again looks nothing like the first Knives Out. Yeah, I do like how distinct it feels, you know, from even just just visually like we're talking about. It is so much brighter. It feels so much more there, there's a lot more sp- open space that they're playing with versus Knives Out is it's a lot in cars, it's a lot in uh, the living rooms and the 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 spaces that they're kind of fighting over. This is 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 like out in the open, very wide, very blue, very bright. I I like it a lot. What did you think of the celebrity cameos, Seamus? Did they all work for you? I definitely laughed at the ones that I <laughs> noticed. Was that Yo-Yo Ma in, in a party somewhere? Absolutely was it was. Talking what a about champion. Music. <laughs> uh, I only know him visually from Arthur, so I had to put some pieces together, <laughs> but I got there. I got there. Can you believe that Yo-Yo Ma was so cavalier about <laughs> COVID protocol in the height of I the can- pandemic? Yo-Yo Ma is a party animal in this universe. <laughs> Uh, I, I, what, I, what did you think of the COVID setting of it all? I mean, I, I like that it kind of gave a lot of characterization to these weird pseudo-celebrity characters. And I'm also still curious about what they shot into the back of their mouths with that like weird blowgun thing. When Ethan Hawke showed up for one scene to shoot <laughs> yeah, into the back yeah. of their mouths. Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. I uh, was really expecting him to be around more, but I, that was very funny. I think there are kind of three things that are happening with the COVID stuff. And I think one is exactly what you said, which is it's a really effective shorthand to get to know these characters. Mm. By this point, we all know like people who wear their masks certain ways behave like that's that tells us something about Mm -hmm. a person in a way that pre-pandemic never never would have been able to give us such a good visual shorthand on the second one is and i guess this is really kind of an extension of the first one it's to show what a completely different world that they live in that this rich aristocracy exists in a world that doesn't have a pandemic going on that apparently miles braun has some kind of like little miracle <laughs> shooty drug that you he can has the ingest. cure for covid for some reason he or just maybe he it. doesn't and it's all bs and that would add to the depth of his character too because everything else is a show he hires jillian flynn to write his mystery he hires a he hires another guy to to, to do his puzzle box yeah, you know yeah he's not doing any of the actual stuff and all the things that he says he does are are fake in some capacity but i think the third thing and i think this is something that johnson has even spoken about in interviews is that he is clearly making films that are about the time that Mm -hmm. they are made and it's not necessarily to say that they have something to say about every current event that they reference but johnson much like agatha christie and a lot of other mystery writers are couching their mysteries in a not necessarily a very realistic world, but a world that is very much of the time that it's written, or in this case, just the film was made. Because you're dealing with a specific cast of characters that have to exist in a very specific environment, kind of like how Clue is set during a very specific time during the Red Scare, you know, even though it wasn't made (laughs) during that time. But because there's all kinds of larger political implications and larger societal implications that come along with being set in a specific time period i think johnson thinks that's interesting and obviously this was something of a pandemic project for him so why not reflect that in the actual art that's produced oh very well said i i had very similar thoughts on the characterizations and honestly it it felt like it added for how wacky this movie turns out to be it adds a level of groundedness to the intro and the the world that they're in it's like they're affected by things that are real however fictionalized it is if that's a real covid cure gun that they're working around with or whatever it's it's at least very interesting and it made me feel like we are progressing in the world that he's been fleshing out with these two movies that he has now and obviously some kind of idea for future benoit blanc adventures but I, I appreciated that it felt like we were catching up with Benoit Blanc in that bathtub. And it wasn't just like, he's got a bunch of 
random things that he's been doing that we have no knowledge of. It's like he is as affected as everyone else was in the reality of what COVID was for movies, for just being outside, for meeting your friends and playing among us in the bathtub. Yeah, exactly. I, I, I liked it. While your husband, Hugh Grant, gets the sourdough starter going. <laughs> I loved that puzzle box intro, by the way. I don't want to I don't want to gloss over that. That was a lot of fun. Set a great tone for the mysteries happening for Miles as just an eccentric weirdo who likes to make his friends giggle about about nonsense. And that is also such a good way to establish all of those different characters. And oh, yeah, their their own dealings with uh, with the puzzle box. And like any great film opening, it really is a, a microcosm for the film to come because it's all of these characters doing the dance that Miles wants them to do, relying on each other without fully understanding the gravity of the situation mm-hmm. that they're in, and then immediately cutting to Andy, who doesn't care about any of that, and is a realist and a pragmatist, mm. and smashes that thing open, just like she smashes all of the glass and the Mona Lisa at the end of this film. That was a very cathartic scene where they're all kind of realizing that for Miles being such like a weird, evil billionaire man, that getting under his skin is as easy as like breaking his toys and not letting him get the satisfaction of a win that he cheated anybody else out of it i i really liked that that he murdered two people for yeah they're friends they're all like a friend group yeah there there, there was a good catharsis there watching that watching that lady burn what did you think of the mystery were you surprised when that camera turned around and batista was standing there choking i i don't know i i was almost of the mind of benoit blanc of like things couldn't be so simple like there's there's a million threads that I need to tug on to to get to a space, but by the time the the reveals were starting to roll out, I guess I wasn't necessarily too surprised. Maybe I've seen enough things where Catherine Hahn is like secretly evil that I, I, <laughs> I suspected her, but I was more surprised and very giddy at Benoit Blanc just ruining the game mystery. Oh, yeah. I was like... So ready for the game itself to be, it was going to be like a game night style. What is the real mystery and what is the game? But the way he crumples that is just absolutely hilarious. Well, that's the, um, we'll bring this up actually a little bit later during our pop culture reference, but there is a film called The Last of Sheila from the 1970s. It is so much like Glass Onion that Ryan Johnson clearly has a great affinity for that film. It's about this group of rich friends, their kind of enigmatic de facto leader invites them all on a Mediterranean cruise where they're all going to play a convoluted mystery game. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Yeah, and murder ensues, believe it or not. I really like that film, and it's it's really good. Actually, strangely, and this is a little bit of a spoiler for our pop culture reference, but I think it's just the strangest duo co-written by Stephen Sondheim and Anthony Perkins, Norman Bates himself, Anthony Perkins. Oh my god. Isn't that such a weird writing duo? That is fascinating. I that is that is so fun. It's worth checking out. It's on Turner Classic movies from time to time, so that's my unofficial rec center for this week is The Last of Sheila. I'm sure you and Ryan Johnson would very much agree on that pseudo rec center. Yeah, there you go. Backpedaling a little bit. I know I know we've already moved past this kind of, but who did you expect to get murdered in this movie going in, Seamus? I honestly expected more than what happened. I I thought we were gonna get strung along with Miles for a while and that he was gonna finally get his. Or that it was going to look like he got his, and then it was going to go back to maybe it's part of the game, maybe he's in on it, whatever. But I thought that it wasn't just going to be Batista, if I'm being honest. I went into this movie based on the very limited marketing that I'd been exposed to, assuming Edward Norton was the murder victim. Not to say that I wasn't expecting Ryan Johnson to also pull the rug out from under me. And then as the film progressed, a lot of it seemed to kind of bolster that mentality, And then after the dinner party scene where Blanc solves it, I thought, okay, Andy's going to die. 
was where my head went. Is like, ah. okay, you've got the person who's ostracized, and she got this big, dramatic opening reveal. And then I'm like, okay, so now he's setting. And he's so good at those misdirects of not telegraphing necessarily that she's the one who's going to be killed, but just drawing this attention to her that you don't necessarily know why it's being drawn yet. Yeah, and it, it does come together well. As much as I'm talking about the whole twin thing, I when they do go back and they show the secret whispering conversations and and all of that, it, it does work for me. But I also initially thought that she was not... I thought she was going to either be the murderer in the end and it was going to be a little bit of a a bait and switch. But I, I fully was not expecting what we ended up getting. And I also thought, like, girlfriend and the assistant girl, were they were going to be cannon fodder and it was going to, like, rack up a little bit more body count with, yeah. with the smaller characters first. But that's a shame because I, re- I really like Jessica Henwick, who is Peg, the, the assistant to Kate yes. Hudson. And I also really like Leslie Odom Jr. And they got, like, nothing to do yeah, in yeah. this movie. Which I was really expecting Leslie Odom Jr. to get something to do in this movie because... He also gets kind of a big dramatic intro to his character. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. He's he. I would argue that he, of the main, main cast of suspects, Catherine Hahn, Leslie Odom Jr., Kate Hudson and Edward Norton and Dave Bautista. Those five, that's the core mm-hmm. group. I mean, Janelle Monae is kind of her own separate thing. Yeah, that that, that, that gets so messy. that they, Not necessarily in that list, I would say. Leslie Odom Jr., I feel like, is the one who gets by far the least to do. Yeah, considering he is one of the more important figures in Miles's whole scheme. Like, everyone else is, like, a little more tangential. They're being blackmailed, or they're being helped by the money that he has or whatever he was like in the corporation he was doing the science and the work and and all that i I thought he was gonna have more a lot more to do too yeah and i think that's it's kind of just a hard thing because there's some people like kate hudson who are more comic relief characters and then there are some Mm -hmm. people who have more kind of like dynamic or integral roles he doesn't really get either of those, so he's just kind of a bystander in all of this. Yeah, not even much to do in the chaos of everything. They don't even really follow him individually the way that they kind of zoom in on people when the lights go out and, <sighs> and everybody splits up, which was I've been amazing. waiting to talk about that sequence. That's yeah. an amazing sequence. Loved it so much. The the panic of like the impending lights out is, is so fun. And the way that the storytelling is done so minimally but so masterfully with that rotating lighthouse light and there will be i don't even know how they staged these how like how precise the choreography had to be oh man there are so many shots in that sequence where you'll have a character in the foreground who gets illuminated and then they go into black and then the light keeps going and then you see like the shadow of somebody running further down the hallway or you'll see somebody down the hallway in the background illuminated by the light and then the light will keep coming, and then, uh-oh, around the corner, right here in front of the camera where you couldn't even see them, is somebody hiding from them. Oh, and that's so, so cool. That's such an interesting visual that I don't know if I've ever really seen. I, I've seen things like it before, but I don't think I've ever seen a sequence like that in a film. If I don't go rewatch the whole movie, I want to like get back into the meat of that sequence because it is truly so so well done. And like you're saying, I don't even know how they did some of the shots that they ended up getting in there, but I loved it. And there, there's a couple really interesting in in doing a little more research about the the movie itself before we did this. There there's a couple really interesting shots in that that happen really fast in that lights out sequence that hold in incredibly big reveals that are like right in plain sight but the way they're shooting it makes it such a misdirect that you completely miss miss it entirely like miles like has batista's gun in one of the shots like way before anything yep. else is revealed and and you literally see him hand batista the the glass the glass yeah. that has the pineapple juice in it that is in that sequence that first sequence that is the mystery greatness of this is that it's all it's all really right in front of you but the way that it, it takes you on that journey is through the flashbacks and the, the misdirects that we've been talking about it's it's so good before we move on Seamus this is my last ditch effort to sell you a little bit more on the twin thing and I'm gonna ask you if you would if you would 
like it a little bit more if it would work for you if you considered the fact that when they all get on that boat, when they all get to that island, um, that there is an imposter among us. Ah. Uh, all right. That's not bad. That's not bad. Okay. Just, technically, there's two. There's, there's two. That's true. That's true. Because because Blanc is something of an imposter, unless there's somebody else even that you mean. No, no, I was talking about Blanc. Yeah, I, yeah I'm not entirely against the Janelle Monet reveal. I'm not going to fully put my back against the wall on all of that. But in that big reveal sequence of the second act, I did like the smaller pieces that do start to fit together, especially between the rest of the cast, when we're still unsure who and who is not involved in the initial murder plot. And so I, I, do, I do enjoy that. The one thing I'll say that I wanted out of this movie that I didn't get was I hoped that Noah Segan... Kato Kalen would be part of the actual <laughs> mystery, and he was not. No, he was not. There's a, there's a couple that just pop in, and then they're out. It's it's a misdirect in and of itself. What if in the darkness he popped out and started doing his thing? <laughs> well, they, you we actually do get that. We kind of do get that, because during the flashback sequence, we see Janelle Monet when she's trashing, ransacking all the rooms, go into his. That is, that is very true. <laughs> yeah, that is true. Should we continue our Glass Onion spoiler talk over on our pop culture reference? Oh, let's do it, Dr. Movies. For today's pop culture reference, we're going to be breaking down some of the cameos and how they're related to murder mystery legacies in Glass Onion, A Knives Out Mystery. So if you've not watched the film and you don't want it to be spoiled for some potential cameos that pop up, just go ahead and skip this section. Time codes are, of course, as always, down in the description of the podcast. But, Seamus, we're not going to be uh, scripting this like we normally do for our pop culture references because it's so short and sweet and so conversational that we might as well just, just get a little back and forth going, I think. Yeah, let's do it. So, actually, I guess we should present the scene as it is in the film. Benoit Blanc, over the COVID-19 pandemic, is playing among us in his bathtub with four celebrities. We have Angela Lansbury, Stephen Sondheim, Natasha Lyonne, and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Surprisingly, and it's kind of taken me some time to figure this out, and I actually had to look one of them up, but all of them have connections to murder mysteries that makes sense for them to be playing with the world's greatest detective. Honestly, most surprising of all is Kareem Abdul-Jabbar to me. Well, why don't we save that one for last then, Shavis, so I can oh, okay, blow your okay. mind. Because you want to go ahead and run down the ones that you already know since, I, since I've got them all locked and loaded? I mean, I knew Angela Lansbury and Stephen Sondheim. I, I mean, I know who Kareem Abdul-Jabbar is. I just didn't know really why he was there. So obviously, Angela Lansbury for Murder, She Wrote. Murder, she wrote. Stephen Sondheim, as previously mentioned earlier in our main segment, wrote The Last of Sheila with Anthony Perkins, which was a, obviously a massive influence on Glass Onion. Natasha Leone, interestingly, is actually going to be in Ryan Johnson's new detective television series, Poker oh, Face, which comes no out kidding. really soon. <laughs> okay, I didn't know that one either. Shame, so maybe you and I have to sit down and watch that together. I'm pretty excited for that one. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, this is the one that I learned after watching Glass Onion, actually has his own series of novels that are mystery novels following Sherlock Holmes's brother, Mycroft. What? That, what, for real? That is insane. I we did a little research and I knew that he was writing mystery novels. They are spin-offs of Sherlock Holmes that is the craziest thing I've ever heard I kind of want to read some of them now yeah. I think that sounds fun because that that's sounds a fun, like a lot of fun it's a fun concept in general but the fact that Kareem Abdul-Jabbar is the guy writing them is just hilarious to that me. is so fascinating god bless him that is that is so cool how many books are there? Is it a series, you said? Yeah, there's several. I mean, I don't know exactly how many there are. Mycroft fan fiction by Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. That is the wild. So it looks like there's only three? No, there's four, maybe. 
He's probably still writing them. He was he was in that movie for a reason. Yeah, the last one was in 2019. So I mean, honestly, I never probably would have would have known this if it were not for Glass Onion. So I definitely wouldn't have. But that is the most goofy and impressive thing that I randomly know about Kareem Abdul-Jabbar now. He co-wrote three of them with Anna Waterhouse. And then he also wrote the graphic novel Mycroft Holmes and the Apocalypse Handbook with Raymond Obstfeld. Well, that is even more fascinating. A graphic novel version of a Mycroft story co-written by Abdul-Jabbar. That sentence is getting stranger as I say it. Well... Uh, I think you found your new calling, Seamus, who wishes to read the entire Mycroft Holmes series, co-written yeah, by Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. I really, really want to. I think I'm, I'm going to do some research on those and maybe pick them up. After our short and sweet reference, should we save the rec center? Please. It's been too long. we got to save it. Save the rec center! Now it's time to save the rec center, where we bring you our weekly recommendations. Seamus, what's up top for you? Well, over the holidays, I enjoyed a lovely viewing of the 2021 French horror film Titan, and Yo! it absolutely blew me out of the water. It was grotesque and horrifying and beautifully shot and incredibly disturbing, and I absolutely loved it. It was I've been meaning to watch this one for a long time now, and I've been getting nonstop recommendations from my brother Coleman, who finally brought his Blu-ray over and watched it with us, and it was incredible. Horrifying and incredible, and I would like to see it again because I was floored by the emotionality of the performances in what is truly one of the more disturbing horror movies I've seen in a while, and I highly, highly recommend it. Uh, our boy Fritz and I have been talking about watching that since it was in theaters. Oh, so. snap. Dude, I will rewatch it with you guys, because I, I, need, I need another one under my belt. It is, it is rough to watch. It is super <laughs> dark and strange, and uh, I was going to go into a little bit of plot, but now I'm definitely not going to. You, I know I almost nothing about it, so please, I, yeah, yeah, please yeah, keep I me in the dark. I knew nothing about it going in besides that it was in French, basically, and that it was a horror movie, and that's the way to do it. It is beautiful and disgusting, and I will watch it with you once again. If you want something a little bit, uh, not more uplifting, it's not really more uplifting, but it's something, it's something else. It's something a little bit more palatable. Fair, Let's fair. say now streaming on Paramount Plus is Devotion, starring two podcast favorites, Jonathan Majors and oh. Glenn Powell, as nice. uh, naval pilots during the Korean War. So Jonathan Majors is playing Jesse Brown, who is the first uh, African American Navy pilot. While it is uh, definitely about that, I was kind of surprised at how not biopicy this movie was. It's hmm. superhuman. Like it's it's it is a war film. It is a biopic. It's all of those things, but it doesn't fall into most of the trappings of those genres of those types of films. There is so much dimensionality to all of the characters, and it really just does feel like normal people navigating insane situations if you can tolerate joe jonas playing <laughs> playing a flyboy in the that 1950s <laughs> then i really i really would recommend checking this one out because i know it did not do well in theaters i know it didn't stay in theaters for very long which is surprising considering the super charming guy from top gun maverick he's flying planes again do you think that that would have gotten more people in the seats that's glenn powell of course and so it's just a little weird to me <laughs> that didn't translate to better box office success but i don't also think it was marketed very well so if you've got paramount plus or if you want to go ahead and start your free trial I highly recommend. It's nothing like Top Gun Maverick, just for the record. Um, <laughs> okay, okay. Other than, like, there is some plane action, but even the plane action is staged entirely differently than it is in something like Top Gun Maverick. But I was really impressed with it. I liked it way more than I thought I was going to. And I want more people to see it, because I don't think a lot of people even really knew it came out. Yeah, I've been seeing it 
pop up in ads and and seeing the thumbnails and stuff and I, I you know I've just kind of brushed past it but that is a glowing recommendation and I I really do love everything you said including the fact that Joe Jonas is there why did you say that like it was a bad thing it's like Harry it's, Styles it's really, in Dunkirk it's that's strange. exactly what Fritz said that's exactly what Fritz said Chavis. oh yes me and Fritz we're on the same wavelength. And it's just really distracting, except he's actually not bad in it, so it kind of, like, you oh, that's know. that's good, that's good. Like, Joe Jonas is allowed to be an actor, I'll let him be an actor, you know? Yeah, if, if Nick why not? can be a Jumanji, why not Joe, you know? <laughs> exactly, why not? Throw him in there. I, I, I think I am down to watch this movie. That sounds like a very interesting time, and I like a good airplane movie, so yeah. I, I'm, I'm there for it. Stay tuned this summer for Kevin Jonas in Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer. <laughs> That's not real, by the way. I was going to say, are you screwing with me? Did I miss that part of the trailer? Um, but I feel like that's the natural extension. If, if we've got uh. Nick Jonas in Jumanji as a pilot guy, and then you've got Joe Jonas in a serious Korean War movie as a pilot guy, I think the next logical step is Kevin Jonas has to drop the bomb at Hiroshima. I was, oh I my think. god, that is horrifying. But that's that's what's gonna happen. The surprise cameo that we all want and absolutely would hate. I guess that wraps us up for this week's episode <laughs> of Pop Culture Reference. First one to 2023. If you want to reach the show, you can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at PCR underscore podcast. You can email us at popculturereferencepod at gmail.com. Next week, we will be, at long last, after years of you threatening me with it, talking about the video game, the most acclaimed video game of all time, probably The Last up of there, Us. It's up there. Naughty Dog's Last of Us, in anticipation, of course, the HBO original series The Last of Us, which I will probably make it farther in than I did the game. Spoilers <laughs> for next week's episode. Oh, that, that'll be a fascinating one. I, I'm very much looking forward to that. I think it'll be good podcasting. Even, even oh, yeah. I think you and I will be coming from very different perspectives. Which I can't even tell you how many times I've played that game. It is gonna be. It is gonna be weird. Well, I, I'm looking forward to. I don't. I don't know about disagreeing with you as much as just having entirely different perspectives on a yes. certain thing. That is exactly what's gonna happen. I can't wait. Well, I'll talk to you next week. Adios, amigos.